0: Thanks, Kim. That's awesome. Okay, Luke chapter sixteen. Let's go there. On a day that uh, feels like heaven, uh, we're going to discuss hell. <laughs> Luke uh, chapter sixteen, beginning at verse nineteen. Okay, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. Literally reads, he feasted every single day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The dogs, too, came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, to the Old Testament, God's word, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is God's word. You can be seated. We're seeing how Jesus loves to speak in parables. And I think even from this parable we can see that this is not just some sentimental story that's, you know, caused us to feel all sappy inside. The parables are meant to mess with us. They're meant to shake us up out of our spiritual slumber. To explode paradigms that we, we might have that are in air. And I like how Jesus does this. In, in, in so many parables, he'll put two characters side by side. And, and, and the two characters will be polar opposites of each other. Uh, usually, it's an insider of some sort. And, and alongside of the insider, will be an outsider. So in the parable of the prodigal, it starts off with a man had two sons. And one son is morally bad. And on the outs, the other son is morally good. And he's in the, on the ins. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to see the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Where it starts off, two men went up to a temple to pray. There again, you have a religious insider, the Pharisee, and, and this pagan outsider, the tax collector. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have the priest and Levite, who are essentially the same. Uh, both of them are political and spiritual insiders. Then you have the Samaritan, who's the epitome ...of an outsider. Luke likes to even do this um, in, in real life situations. Jesus, that one time, is in the home of the Pharisee. And along comes a prostitute. And so you have this Pharisee and this prostitute side by side. And what we find out over and over again... ...it's not the insider who's in with God... It's the outsider. And see, that's how these, these parables mess with us. Because we instinctively just think that the good people are in with God. The, the people that go to church. The people that uh, pray. The people that read their Bibles. That we just automatically assume that, that they're in with God. And that the pimps and the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the pagans... That they're on the outs with God. And here today, you again have a, 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 a rich insider. He's the one who's inside the gate. You have this poor outsider. He's outside the gate. And sometimes we just automatically think that if a person's rich, well, they're blessed of God. And if someone's poor, that they're cursed of God. And so Luke, Luke, no, Jesus. Jesus tells these stories where he puts these two things side by side. And so today you have this rich insider and, and a poor outsider. Let me just start with, with, with the rich man. This is not just a rich man. This guy is Bill Gates. And the reason I know that is because Jesus gives some detail here. First of all, he says uh, he wore purple. In the Roman Empire, only three groups of people were allowed to wear purple. The emperor, senators, and anyone who had the wealth of the emperor were allowed to wear purple. We also see that uh, not only how he's, he, he's clothed, but he also has a gate. Um, he, he lives this gated-in, posh, Existence. That's the rich guy. The other guy isn't just poor, he's the least of the least. In fact, notice uh, where it says in verse 20 this beggar, he's laid. Someone had to pick him up and carry him and lay him down at the gate. And Jesus describes him, rather than even being clothed, Jesus just describes the sores that, that cover his body. So there you have these two guys. Like all of us, at some point in the game, they both die. Look at verse 22. At that time when the beggar died and the angels Wow, isn't that cool? No longer is he carried and laid down uh, as a beggar at the gate, but the angels come and carry him away uh, to heaven's gate. This guy is buried. Is this thing messing with you? What do you think? What's Jesus trying to communicate? Is Jesus telling us this parable to teach that the poor get heaven and the rich get hell? Or that because life is unfair, we can all be encouraged because in the next life, God's going to even the score. Is that what Jesus is teaching here? Well, look at verse 25, when when the rich man cries out to Abraham, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony there. Now, One thing I want to just say right at the outset is, We've got to be careful to not develop a whole theology about heaven and hell just from this text because what Jesus is doing is he's just using some of the common folklore of his day. In fact, I think we have some of the same folklore in our day. Uh, we just, instead of having Abraham and Abraham's bosom, we replace that with St. Peter and the pearly gates. Have you ever heard of St. Peter and the pearly gates joke? No? Who's heard of St. Peter Who wants to tell a St. Peter and the pearly gates joke right now? I'm serious. I know. I looked at them. They're all over the place. And they're all too inappropriate for right now. Most of them. So so Jesus is is making use of this folksy heaven and hell imagery that was very common in his day. And you come to verse 25 and, and you would think that this verse is supporting this idea that That God is going to use the next life to even the score. Or maybe even to go as far as to say that the poor are going to go to heaven and and the rich are going to go to hell. See, this is why it's important, though, to read a text in its context. Because there are a lot of threads that, that Jesus is developing leading up to the telling of this parable. In fact, one of the main threads, uh, starting already back uh, at Luke, in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus is talking a lot about money, wealth. In Aramaic, it's this word mammon. Mammon is, is what Dan Mike introduced to us last week. It's the Hebrew ma'odaka, the, the muchness that, that a person possesses. And in Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, Beware. For a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. A man's life is not based on their mammon. And I don't know if you know this, but this word beware, that's the only time Jesus ever uses this word beware. Uh, And he uses it about money. Because I think even we today know the dangers of other sins. We know the dangers of, 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 of lust and, and where lust can lead. We know the dangers of, of gluttony and where gluttony can lead. Or, or an addictive substance or slothfulness or pride and self-centeredness. We, we know the dangers of those sins. But do we know the danger of money? See, this is why Jesus says, "Beware, be on your guard." And it's not because money in itself is evil. It's not that even the creation of wealth is evil. I mean, anyone who thinks that doesn't understand the first chapter in the Bible, where are God who made us in His image, and and, and this is one of the primary ways in which we're like God and we fulfill the calling that God has placed on our life, which involves stewarding his world for his glory, which involves building things and making things, creating things, organizing things, unleashing the power and the potential that's within people and things. I know some of you in this room right now have an incredible talent, a God given talent to create wealth. And I say amen to that and, and do it for God's glory. But beware. All of us need to beware. Because mammon is a dangerous thing. In fact, Jesus, I think, says it's the most dangerous thing because instead of us. Mastering it, it so often masters us. In fact, if you know the context in which Jesus is talking about money, he's he set his fate like face like Flint on Jerusalem. Where he's making his journey, where he's going to, to Jerusalem to die. And when someone is about to die, their their final words are 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 really important. And if you think about it, a large proportion of Jesus' final words are about money. Wealth. So what's the danger of money? Let me just say a few things that I think we need to notice in this parable. The fact that this rich man from hell calls out to Father Abraham, not just Abraham, but Father Abraham. Tells me that both of these characters are Jews. They both belong to the people of God. They both are people who believe in God. They're both people who probably know God's word, who pray in the synagogue, who worship together. But here's a big difference between the two one has a name. The poor man has a name. The rich man is nameless. What's the significance of that? I'll start with this. All the parables Jesus tells, this is the only time one of his characters has a name. When I was in Jerusalem, I took a class by a Jewish rabbi. Uh, The class was called the parables of Jesus. And we looked at the parables of Jesus. We also looked at the 2,000. We didn't look at all 2,000. But there are 2,000 other parables from rabbis that go back to the time of Jesus. He said in all the parables. This is the only time where one of the characters has a name. Now, in the Jewish world, a name is hugely significant because it forms a major part of a person's identity. And I tested this once on our our Jewish guide, Nadav. I, I asked him, Nadav, what does your name mean to you? And he just, boom, he didn't even think about it. He goes, my name means almost everything to me. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I think about my name every day. I said, what does your name mean? He says, My name means generous. (laughs) If you know Nadav, you know him to be one of the most generous people around. He said, That's my calling. This is who I am. Two times in Revelation, Jesus says, To those who belong to me, I will give them a new name. And what does that mean? It means that he gives us a whole new identity that is now rooted in him. This this, this whole sense that, that we belong to God. That God loves us. That we're part of God's family as sons and daughters. And see, this is the danger then, I think, of money and wealth. Money and wealth can so quickly become the basis of our identity. Riches can simply make us nothing but a rich man. Because that's what this man is. He's nothing but a rich man. And then look what happens when it is taken away. Let's go back to verse 25. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. But now they're gone. And now who are you? When riches leave him, there's no him left. Who are you? Do you have a name? And what is it? Because in our world, it is easy to let money name us. Because money and wealth, they they, they promise us so much. They promise to give us a name, don't they? Is your life right now consumed with mammon? Consumed with getting it? Consumed with spending it? Consumed with saving it? Because through it, you just think that I get a self. I get a name through this. And Jesus says, beware. Because when we lose it, Because we know we can't take it with us as it fades. We're going to fade with it. And I think this is the danger of money. Psalm 1 says this about the wicked. The wicked are like chaff. Chaff is such a powerful picture because I don't know if you know what chaff is. But basically another way of translating this would say the, the wicked are like lightweights. There's nothing to them. You can just throw them up in the air and go poof. They have no real glory. There's no weightiness. There's no substance to to them. They just kind of blow away. Do you have weight to yourself, substance? Do you have a name? And that's where we have to ask these questions. What are you living for? What, what is that thing that is your ultimate value right now? What is it right now that defines you, that you're looking to, to, to give you a name, a sense of who you are? What is it that gives your life meaning? What is it that gives your life purpose? However we answer these questions, I think spells out our name. Like the famous uh, Christian philosopher Kierkegaard I love his definition of sin. He says, sin is building your identity on anything but God. And see, all of us, we, we, can, we can go uh, through life looking for a name. And we can look for a name in such things as our career, or sports, or our intelligence, or our looks, or how good of a parent we are, or being a good enough Christian... If you think about all these things, they all have something in common. At the end of the day, it's it's all about me, and it's about my performance. Which then results in all of this striving where we strive to be successful enough and smart enough and beautiful enough and a good enough Christian so that we can trust ourselves, we can trust our resources, we can trust our talents, we can trust our goodness and our own righteousness and in that sense be in control and get the life that we want. Where it's all about me and how good I am and how good I look. How smart I am. And then it can so easily turn into, hey world, look at me. (laughs) And then it turns into, hey God, (laughs) look at me. And and all of this, it, it, it can be expressed through purple robes. It can be expressed through the lifestyle of the rich and famous. And it can also be expressed through religion and spiritual showiness. When I look at the Pharisees, I I, I can understand uh, why God calls them out, why Jesus calls them out in terms of their self-righteousness and and this showy thing that they did uh, before men in terms of their spirituality. But what confuses me about the Pharisees is Luke 16, verse 14. Look at that verse. It says, The Pharisees who loved money. I never would have thought that about the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees weren't even rich. They were barely middle class. But see, Jesus shows us that you don't need to be rich to be in the danger of riches. Beware, middle class Christian. And and why is he calling them out, not just on their self-righteousness, but also on on their love of money? Well, look at verse 15. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. See, self-righteousness and greed, when you... Look what's underneath both of those things. You see, see the same root sin. It's the sin of self-justification. What is self-justification? Well, we all live in a world where there are all kinds of standards that are placed on us. There are worldly standards that are, that are placed on all of us Worldly standards of success, worldly standards of beauty, worldly standards of status. We also, as Christians, know that there's God's standard, God's standard for righteousness. And most of us are humble enough to know that we don't meet the standard, we don't come close to the standard. And so this feeling of not measuring up, whether it be materially or socially or physically, intellectually or even spiritually, it causes strategies. It causes us to develop strategies of proving ourselves. We start to think that somehow... Through my effort, through my resources, through my performance, through my strength, through my talents, through my goodness, through my righteousness, I can actually justify myself. And then in our money-obsessed culture, money becomes a primary way for us to try to justify ourselves because money can cover a multitude of sins. Our purple robes and our gated communities, our luxury cars, our, our wonderful vacations can cover a whole host of inadequacies. I mean, I do life in Forest Hills. That's where my family lives. That's where my kids go to school. That's where I coach. That's where we go to the marketplace. And I can tell you right now, underneath all that gloss, living there for 10 plus years, has taught me is chaos. <sighs> chaos of, 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 of the worst kind sometimes. And my Jewish professor uh, in, in, in Jerusalem, when he read this parable to us, I mean, he loved it. He said, oh, I, Jesus is doing commentary on, on, on Psalm 49. I'm like, oh yeah, I knew that. <laughs> no, actually, when he said that, I'm like, and this is what I expect some of you to do right now. Tune out the rest of the sermon. Go to Psalm 49. Yeah, Jesus, he's, this is obvious. He's doing commentary on Psalm 49. You know what Psalm 49 is about? Basically, the psalmist says, we can't justify ourselves through money. And those who trust in money to justify themselves are on a path to destruction. Now, does anybody know what Lazarus means? In Hebrew, it's Eleazar. El, God, Ali, my, God, Etzer, help. My help is God. What a name! What an identity. (laughs) And here's what I want us to see in this. It's not this man's poverty that puts him uh, at Abraham's bosom. Because that too, just like riches, could just become another way that we try to justify ourselves. Let's just all become poor so that then God will have to save us. It doesn't work that way. But what puts him at at Abraham's side is he's been named God is my help. Whether I wear a purple robe or I'm covered with sores. Whether I live within the gate or outside the gate as a beggar. It doesn't matter. But can I say in all that I am, everything I do. God, you are my help. And if you want to know the people who are going to be in heaven. It's going to be the, the, the Lazaruses, the, the Elizars. People whose eyes just instinctively look to God, they're not looking to themselves, they're not looking to their resources, they're not looking to their goodness or their righteousness. God, you're my righteousness. God, you're my strength. God, you're my portion. You're my joy. Now well, here's where I want to be frank with us this morning. You know the people who usually know this? A lot of times it's the poor. Because the poor do do life empty handed. And, and, and this empty-handed way in which they, they do life a lot of times translates to the relationship with God. They, they come to God empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Rotten I to the waters fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And on the flip side, if our hands are full of wealth and, and, and mammon... We come to God that way. If we're middle class, we come to God middle class. Well, God, I can find my way and make it through most things in life, but let me just sprinkle a little Jesus on top in the areas where I'm... You see, this is why Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who understand their, their, their spiritual poverty, that they're spirit, spiritually bankrupt before God. And I think this is also why in Luke, Jesus doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit, but he just says blessed are the poor. Because the poor have an easier time at understanding their poor in spirit. And all you have to do is just look at church history to see that the gospel has always flourished among the poor. And the place where it's oftentimes ridiculed and thrown out and rejected or moderately accepted or watered down is it's with the middle class and the rich. Even today, if you look at where God is moving around the globe, the the, the places where the gospel is advancing, it's among the poor. It's in places like India and China and Africa and South America. And it's being thrown out of places like Europe and the United States. Because the elites of the world, the, 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 the middle class, the The upper crust. I think we have a harder time of just seeing reality. But it's the poor... The poor are usually more in touch with reality. It's, it's, it, it, it's not those who, who run things and who are in charge of things and have a lot of things. Uh, it, 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 it's the people who don't have much who understand that life is difficult and that people are weak and fragile and vulnerable and that we live in a dark, fragile, vulnerable world. And it's from inside a poor person's poverty, oftentimes that Jesus looks so wonderful. Do you know that you're poor in spirit? Do you really know that that, that left to your own that you're spiritually bankrupt? Can you say apart from God rescuing me and, 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 and coming to me and, and, and choosing me. And apart from that, I'm nothing more than a beggar. That left to myself spiritually, that I'm in rags, that I'm homeless, that, I, that, that spiritually I, I, I smell, I stink. Because here's the wonderful truth of the gospel, if you know this. James 2, verse 5, God chooses the poor. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, which became Jesus' whole mission statement. I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor. Jesus moves towards the poor. He identifies with the poor. He exalts the poor. And maybe the best statement yet is made by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Where it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty we might become rich. I think, wow Paul, I know you have to say a lot in just a little little sentence here. But that's quite an understatement. Just to say... Jesus Christ was rich. I mean, he's on the very top. He's. He made today. This is the day he made. All things consist in him. Yet the one on the very top went to the very bottom. The very bottom. I can't come to a text like this and not talk about hell. Who talks about hell the most in the Bible? Jesus. It's even close. What is hell? According to our text today, it's a place of nameless people. I like what Tim Keller says. He says hell is a freely chosen identity based on something other than God that goes on forever and ever. If you want to know the kind of people who will be in hell, hell's going to be filled with people who lived for themselves, whose life was built on self. Because hell is the end to a self-serving, self-justifying, self-exalting, self-indulging, self-promoting, self-helping, self-saving, self-centered, selfish life. It's where one is just stuck inside their isolated self forever and ever. C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, The Problem of Pain and Hell, says, hell begins in this life with a grumbling mood. Always complaining, blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize this grumbling and complaining in yourself and sometimes even wish that you could stop it, but there's going to come a day when you can no longer. Instead of being one who grumbles, you'll be nothing more than a grumbler until you are nothing more than just a grumble going on forever and forever like a machine. And so Lewis concludes, he says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. He says, in each of us there is something growing which will become hell unless, by God's help, we nip it in the bud. And just notice our rich man in, in, in Jesus' parable. I mean, look at what he's doing in hell. He's still bossing Lazarus ar- around. He still thinks he's in charge. He still thinks Lazarus is his slave. He's still making excuses and blaming. God, you just didn't give us enough. If you would just give us a sign and a wonder. No, my word is enough. If you can't believe this, not even resurrection. But probably more important, notice what the rich man doesn't do in hell. And this is what I want us to see. He doesn't repent. And you can look at every text in scripture that talks about hell and you'll never see people in hell who are saying, "Oh God, have mercy, forgive us, we Because hell is not made up of people who are cut to their heart over their sins and wish to repent, but God just won't let them anymore. It's made up of people like this rich man who still thinks he's at the center of the universe. Listen, there is no repentance in hell. And hell is God finally saying, you really want life without me? You really want to do, do it your way? Have it. Romans 1, we get small little tastes in this world of both heaven and hell. Uh, Romans 1, God already is letting people take their, those first steps towards hell. Where God, it says, he, just, he gave them up. He gave them over. And I'll tell you, anyone who thinks that this is just way too nice of a picture of hell... I don't think you have any idea of how awesome God's presence really is and how prevalent his presence is right now in our world. This is why Jesus has to speak in pictures like using things like fire and torment. Uh, Think about fire. What does fire actually do? When something is placed in a fire, it just disintegrates. Fire breaks things down and, 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 and causes things to fall apart. And right now, Colossians 1 verse 17 says, In him all things consist. Everything is still held together by Christ. But hell is going to be that place where Christ will be absolutely Absent. That's what makes hell, hell. Imagine our world today. Imagine this morning without the sun. And now you're getting a small picture of what what reality will be like in hell for people who are utterly forsaken by God. And here's what I want to end with. Jesus didn't just become poor for you. He didn't just suffer for you. He didn't just die for you. Jesus went to hell for you. He says on the cross, he doesn't say, oh, these, these, these nails hurt. My body. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, he suffered hell. Isaiah 53, which describes the, the torment and the suffering that the Messiah would bear in our place, it ends with, and, and, and he will look at it and be satisfied. Why? Why? Because he looks at who he died for, and suffered for, and went to hell for, and he says, it was worth it. It was worth it. And so if you're someone here today who doesn't believe in hell, then you are so minimizing the love of God, and what God in Christ actually did for you. And see, when we know that we are loved... And valued and cherished this much by the one who made us and knows us. We have a name. In one sense, this name humbles me because I I have to be constantly reminded that the God of the universe had to go to that extreme. He literally had to go to hell for me to get me and... And yet it also exalts me because it was so worth it to him. Because he loves us so much. Do you live life loved? Do you live life with, with, with his name? Because if we do, it doesn't matter if we're dressed in, in purple or our body is covered with sores. It doesn't matter, says Paul, whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm uh, uh, hungry. It doesn't matter. Whatever my circumstances are, it doesn't matter. And I'll tell you, one of the ways that we know that we have a name, that God has named us, that our identity is rooted in him, that it's rooted in in, in how much he loves us and values us and cherishes us, is how we handle our wealth. Because it's not wealth that will send us to hell, but it's a certain kind of wealth. It's the kind of wealth that doesn't see poverty and suffering. It's the kind of wealth that makes us oblivious to the Lazaruses of the world. Lazarus is still at the gate. Everywhere. Last week, Dan Mike taught us Shema, Shema. uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with with everything that you have. And love him with your mayadaka, with your muchness. And Jesus said there's a second part to this. He says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I wish the English could represent what it actually says in the the Hebrew. It says, love your neighbor who is like yourself. The orphan is like me. The homeless person is like me. The pimp and the prostitute is like me. The beggar is like me apart from the love of God. And Jesus says, love your neighbor, which includes the beggar, the Samaritan, the poor, the pimp, the prostitute who is like you. And if not, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is your help today? Can you honestly say that in every area of your life, every aspect of your being, every moment of every day, God is my help. God is my help. God is my help. If not, repent. Repent. In fact, this morning we have a wonderful symbol that was used during the time of Jesus called mikvah where people could come to water like this and they could say, God, (laughs) these hands are unclean. My mind is unclean and thought unclean. My heart has willed unclean things. And my feet have walked unclean paths. I confess my unclean. I repent. And I commit myself. I commit my hand. I commit my heart and I commit my mind and I commit my feet to you. And when we repent, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven breaks forth in a person's life. The love of God is unleashed. and We find out that we have a name. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your son. it's because of this, this gospel, this person, Jesus, that today we can all repent. I pray that there would be repentance in this room. And your power and your love would be unleashed in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name.